1: Wherever podcasts are available.
2: Hi, I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hey there, Lynx. Hey, Shanti. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, just uh,
1: trying to enjoy the fall as much as possible. How about you?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, haven't had a pumpkin spice latte, but I've been loving my walks outside and crunching on the leaves and making stews and all that really warm, comforting stuff.
1: Yeah, the farm must look really nice right now with the changing colors
2: and everything. It sure does. And that spooky song that you just heard, while this episode is coming out very close to Halloween, we're not doing a spooky Halloween episode. We don't really do, I guess, those kind of themed episodes. Mm -hmm. But I did choose the Talking Heads. Sorry, I did choose Talking Heads spookiest song. Even David Byrne tried to make it sound a little spooky and ghosty. And so that's why we played that song at the top of the show. Yeah, I love that song. It's a lot of fun. One of their songs are, though. It's true. One thing that I particularly like about that song is the vocals with Tina Weymouth. And then both of her sisters, Laura and Lonnie, are singing that air part. And uh, they've actually collaborated on a lot of Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club records, the sisters. By providing wow. backup vocals. So we'll definitely get into that as today. We are gonna be talking about the book Remain in Light, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club and Tina by Chris France, the drummer and founding member of Talking Heads. Oh, I'm so pumped for this. They're
1: such a fun band. A couple of days ago, I uh watched Burns American Utopia and was just singing and dancing along to all of their songs. And Tina Waymouth is just so incredible. Like what a you, you always know a baseline by Tina, you know? Absolutely. She's a total pioneer. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I'm pumped that you uh, discovered this book and are presenting it.
2: Now, this book came out recently. Uh, I gave it. I gifted it to my brother for his birthday. And then I also bought myself a copy. And nice. so we're both reading it. And I just... I had to do an episode on it. I'm so fascinated by this band. I've always really liked them. And I listened, I re-listened to the entire discography in order, including Tom, Tom Club, while I was reading and writing and typing everything up. And the energy kind of really makes you in the zone too. So I felt like I was typing, I was grooving, I was mm-hmm. vibing. And speaking of Halloween, I'm pretty sure I've seen you
1: dressed as David Byrne before.
2: I did dress as David Byrne in the big suit for Halloween a few years ago. (laughs) Now, the weirdest thing about that was we were walking to the bar, all of us dressed up in our Halloween costumes, and we took a side street. And out of nowhere, I heard, David Byrne? (laughs) <laughs> and I look over to a porch and there is another David Byrne, somebody in a large David Byrne suit. And we're like, oh my God. And we took a photo and we weren't headed to the same bar. But who, like, what are the odds of two David Byrnes meeting on a side street in Toronto? Uh,
1: I love it so much. Halloween can be magical. It's unfortunate that uh, this year is going to be a little different, but uh... It's fun to have those memories.
2: Yeah, I've also dressed up as Debbie Harry one year, which I forgot to post when we when we put out our Debbie Harry episode. Yeah. I dressed. I've dressed up like the Breakfast in America album cover. All you know what? I'm gonna. I'll put out all three of those costumes. Yeah.
1: yeah, you have great rock and roll ones. It's been a long time since I've dressed up, and obviously, not doing anything this year. But maybe once uh, COVID's over, I'm gonna have to think of something good and like really celebrate that year.
2: Well, we're going to, I haven't made it yet, but we were thinking of making a Zoom call for Halloween. So that way, if our friends like want to dress up at home, we'll just send out the Zoom link and you can pop in and have a drink with us. We'll just be in our living room dressed up in our little outfits. Amazing. Yeah. So why Sounds don't you fun. dress up like, uh, I don't know, Willie Nelson or um, um, what the hell is that guy's name? Sweet child of mine, you know? Axl hey. Rose. Axel Rose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no no fuss just like a little bit of eyeliner put a bandana fantastic. on and do some funny moves in your living room All right, I'm in. (laughs) I'll send you the Zoom link. Um, okay, before we get into the episode, we just wanted you know wanted you to know that we are on Patreon every second week. So when we're not releasing a regular episode, we put something up on Patreon. We add music in. A lot of the times we do videos. Our most recent Patreon episode was about K-pop and the Netflix documentary Blackpink Light Up the Sky. And it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, we really enjoy doing the Patreons. It's just us talking
1: and sharing things. And thank you all for supporting us. And for those who either don't have the time or resources or whatever and still want to support us, we do have a PayPal account.
2: That's right. So if you – we don't have Venmo because we're Canadian and we don't have Venmo uh, here in Canada yet. But you can PayPal us at Musespod – sorry. Musespod at gmail.com. Yep. If you wanted to do a one-time donation and if you are not in a position to financially donate, then sharing an episode, leaving us a review on iTunes, that is really helpful and we really appreciate it.
1: Yes. Thank you all so much for everything you've done uh, supporting us already.
2: Yeah, we have some special things coming in the new year. You know, 2020 uh, has been a difficult year and we've tried our best and then we've remained on schedule and I think we're just going to finish off the year and do our regularly scheduled things, but we have some really special things planned for the new year. Yeah. Yeah, it, lots of big things. It involves more of us and and can I say more more content, yeah. more yeah. episodes?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
2: a little bit different. But you're gonna get, get some more from us and we're really excited. We've just been planning it, we're working on it and then we're gonna start that in the new year. Yeah, really looking forward to that as well. Okay.
1: Yeah, let's get into this, Tina. Well,
2: all right, so while this book was written by Chris France, the founding member of The Talking Heads and the Drummer, Tina is of course an integral part of this episode in his life because they have been married for over 40 years.
1: So impressive.
2: This is a very rare episode because we're not going to talk about the breakup of the relationship of Chris and Tina. They're still going strong. Yeah, true. Like, and, and I love that because that does not really happen in, in music and rock and roll. So we are going to talk about where they, where the band grew up, where they met, how Talking Heads began, Chris and Tina creating Tom Tom Club, and their life together. Perfect. Now, what are your thoughts? I, I know you are a fan of Talking Heads, but what about Tom Tom Club? I don't know them as well, so that's something that uh, I'm going to research after. Okay, you definitely should. We're going to add some Tom Tom Club music into this episode. Uh, I listened to, I didn't listen to the entire Tom Tom Club disc- discography because there are over six albums or there are six albums, but I did listen to the first one and it is a jam.
0: Cool. It's amazing.
2: We'll get into it in further detail later. But Chris describes Talking Heads as the thinking man's dance music. Hmm which yeah that's good makes sense yeah so for tina chris really calls her the love of his life who became a crucial member of the band and an iconic pioneer for women in music this is so true now tina we find out at the end of this book has been working on her own book she's working on her book at the same time as chris's so hopefully we're going to get a tina waymouth memoir because she is so fascinating she's so smart she's so artistic she's so cultured that i would love she's so eloquent she's so good with words she's a writer i would love to hear her side of things as well for sure in the meantime i I sent this to you you can uh find the tina weymouth tribute it's an eight minute video on youtube Mm -hmm. which kind of sums up her life and her career in a nice little uh with a nice little boat So Chris and Tina met in painting class at the Rhode Island School of Design, and I'll be referring to it as RISD. After college, they moved to New York, and they would be playing and creating music at the same time, and alongside bands like Television, Patti Smith, Blondie, and the Ramones.
1: Uh, Can you imagine?
2: Mm -hmm. Of Talking Heads. Chris says, you could say that Tina and I were the team who made David Byrne famous. We were very good at shining the spotlight on him. We created a band that was post-punk before there was post-punk. New Wave before there was New Wave. And Alternative before there was Alternative. It's true. Absolutely. So a quick chat about David Byrne in this book. Uh, Chris and Tina have... Mentioned that you know socially emotionally he was it, it was tough at times to be in a band with him. Um, they mentioned that at the time this word like wasn't really in anybody 's mouth, but they believe David Byrne is on the high functioning side of autism and then I saw an interview that he had done, and the interviewer had brought it up and had said, you know people from the autism community when they associate you with that, they are very happy about that. You know, you would bring a lot to this community and David didn't really admit one way or another, if he has autism or if he identifies with it, but he has said that just kind of like, yeah, I did find it difficult, especially when I was younger to socially uh, interact with people. Mm -hmm. That's kind of all, as far as I know that he's really said about it, but I didn't go into too much detail uh, about that. So, what we're going to find in this episode and through this book a little bit is knocking David a little bit off the pedestal because I know for me, before I read this book, he really could do no wrong. Yeah. But as I had said, I had messaged you during this and I was like, oh, we're going to have some problems with David, Mm -hmm. you know, like really a lot of selfish behavior. And you were like, Yeah, I'm not surprised.
1: Yeah. (laughs) We've done enough episodes now to kind of uh, expect this. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah. So we'll take our uh, step back and we'll go to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, May 8th, 1951. That's when Chris was born. Chris's father was a young army officer and his mother was a Southern belle, a real knockout. Because his father was in the army, they moved around a lot. His father was offered an opportunity to study law at Harvard. So the family moved to Boston. They also moved to Virginia where his brother was born at a very young age. Chris loved listening to the radio. He loved rock around the clock by Billy Haley and his comments. Tutti frutti by little Richard. You know, you get the idea Mm -hmm. when his father was a lawyer, he went to Korea following the Korean war and Chris and his mom and brother went to live in Indiana with his grandparents. So, you know, that kind of makes me wonder if all of this moving around kind of prepared him for Mm -hmm. the eventual, for sure. The eventual touring. touring. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of lifestyle would make things a little bit easier, Mm -hmm. kind of more uh, adaptable to change. For sure. It really seems as though Chris had a wonderful childhood again, sometimes or often we talk about, about difficult childhoods, issues with their father. But really, Chris's father was very attentive to his children. They spent quality time together. When they moved to Charlottesville, his father built them a treehouse, a swing. You know, they had access to wildlife in the outdoors. Hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, as it goes, he got a transistor radio. He discovered Elvis and like many of our beloved musicians was totally inspired that must have been such an incredible i mean we take for ve-
1: uh, um take it for vet sorry we take it for granted that we just have all these options musically to be part of that era where you know no one had ever seen an elvis before that must have just been such magic
2: i know right <sighs> We can only, yeah, we can only read about it. Everybody's world's opening up. When Chris was 11, he was walking to school and he had a thought because he wasn't feeling very cool. I'm gonna read you what he says. It only took me about 10 minutes to walk to school, and all the other kids must have been running early or late because I didn't see a soul. Music, Walk Like a Man by the Four Seasons, was looping around in my head. I was not feeling very cool at all since my mom made me wear galoshes that morning. Mm -hmm. I felt I may not be cool today, but one day I will be cool. I will be an artist, maybe even play in a band. I felt that one day I will be respected and have something important and interesting to say. Girls will pay attention to me. I will go away from here and travel far. And when I come back, the girls will be in awe of my accomplishments and want to talk to me. They will think I am cool and they will want to sit next to me. (laughs) (laughs) It's
1: like he's giving himself the almost famous uh, Zoe Deschanel speech, but he's giving it to himself.
2: One day you will be cool. <laughs> so, in school, Chris joined a band. He attempted to play the trumpet, but it wasn't happening for him. He had a great band teacher who encouraged him to try the drums because he noticed that Chris had a good sense of rhythm. Hmm. The next year, Chris's baby sister was born, and one Sunday evening in 1964, his family was watching The Ed Sullivan Show. (laughs) I feel like I mentioned this in every episode. (laughs) Seriously, again, it's like, that was like such a monumental moment for literally anyone who was alive then. I know. He was mesmerized. On the bus to school the next morning, the girls were already singing The Beatles, because of course... That was the iconic performance. He says, the advent of the Beatles and the British invasion that followed was, and still is, one of the most culturally important events of my lifetime.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Sure. You know,
2: I still can't believe that the Ronettes would have been on that plane if it wasn't for Phil Spector. It is mind-blowing, isn't it? Like, uh. that culturally important event for in, like, everybody's lifetime was... For the nets, Yeah Hijacked By yep. A piece of garbage man Yep Oh that's terrible Anyways I'll save that For my thesis <laughs> That year Chris got together With a group of friends From school And they created Their first Rock and roll bla- Band They practiced a lot And mostly played The Beatles Beach Boys Dave Clark Five Their band was called The Lost Chords Hmm Chris is like, I still think that's a good name for a band. It's <laughs> not bad for like, no, you know, 13 years old. There's a cute story about how when he was 13, he was rehearsing it in his garage with uh, his band and a police officer drove up and said that they would have to stop because the neighbors were complaining. Chris's mother handled the, si- the situation and told the officer that he should be ashamed of himself because they're good boys playing good music and nobody should be bothered by this on a summer afternoon. Uh, yeah, she's like, so don't, supportive. You ha- yeah, don't you have anything more important to do? And he was like, well, just keep it <laughs> down. And he, like drove away.
1: Uh,
2: so, of course, Chris liked both the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and he never chose between either of them. When he turned 15, he went to a boarding school in Virginia. Now, I come to understand that this wasn't any kind of punishment. You think of boarding school, and you're like, oh, your parents hate you, and they don't want to, like, they – They're just going to send you away. But really, I believe it was because, you know, he did come from a loving and supportive home. And it seemed that they were just giving him a really good education. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, Chris seemed to enjoy this. He loved Motown and every dorm had a portable radio. They listened to the records that came out of stacks. He loved James Brown. And he says, as uh, I was a believer in the awesome power of what had become to be called soul music.
1: Remember Stacks?
2: I do. I wish that we could go back and stay longer. I know. Next time. We will. I felt like we had something else to do that day and we were on a deadline, but I could spend an entire day at Stacks and I I just want to go. Yeah. I just want to go back.
1: (laughs) I know. I just
2: want to travel again. Me too. Well, at least we get to listen to these adventures. Um, That's true. Okay, so where were we? Chris's first concert was Bob Dylan. Oh, amazing. Yeah, he and his friends had nosebleed seats, but they didn't mind. Eventually, they would come to be on the same bill as Bob Dylan, you know, in 1990. Yeah, it was, he has kind of a funny story. You know, because he, as he's reminiscing about seeing Bob Dylan, then he'll talk about meeting him in 1990. And in this particular time, it was uh, after Roy Orbison died, and Roy's widow Barbara had asked them to play a fundraiser. So Bob Dylan was headlining, and a lot of the bands were. Sitting in Bob's dressing room So before Bob was supposed to come in The security men came in and was like Everybody out, Bob's coming in And doesn't want to see anybody So Emmylou Harris, Bonnie Raitt, Iggy Pop Patrick Swayze and a bunch of other great musicians All got up and left the room But Chris decided to stay. He said, I wanted to meet Bob. He was wearing a blue blazer, so people thought that he worked there and didn't like, shoo him out. And when Bob <laughs> came in, he looked at Chris and said, Hey, man, where did everybody go? Hmm. He says, I told him his people had kicked everybody out. And Bob said, Oh shit, even Emmy Lou? Yes, I said, Even Aww. Emmy Lou.
1: Oh, that's so interesting as well just like hearing a story like oh he's so moody kicking everyone out and then it's like no he didn't even know
2: mm-hmm. he's like where's emmy i know <laughs> so this book is is great for little side stories like that and of course i don't i can't mention all of them but i've tried to mention side stories of particularly like women that were really fascinated in that make appearances great. so as always get the book support the artist and just read it it's fantastic The pictures that he adds with it are wonderful. So after two years of boarding school, Chris was ready to be close to his family and enrolled in a prep school in Pittsburgh. He said that the swinging 60s never really reached the adults of Pittsburgh, but that there was an awakening among the kids.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet. And if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts.
2: At his new school, he took classes called Adolescent Rebellion and Music Appreciation. And Actually, after this episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Miriam Molina, and when she was talking about adolescent rebellion literature, I wanted to be like, oh, I know what that is now. In 1968, he signed up for classes in studio art. At this time, Chris and many other young men were being trained to be leaders in business and medicine. When Chris was 17, he decided that he didn't have what it took to be a musician, but he did have it have what it takes to be a painter and so he decided he'd be an artist amazing in the summers chris worked at a fact worked a factory job at browning manufacturing he operated machinery and worked a lot with rough guys who said the f word never in every single sentence (laughs) he would work in kentucky and stay with his grandparents he owned his own car and he felt free he'd come and go as he pleased and he would even go to church with his grandparents on sunday Yeah, he seems like he had a nice balance, you know, like he was, he seems like a really good guy. And that's the vibe that I got throughout the whole book. It's the vibe that I got in seeing him in interviews, just like his demeanor, the way he speaks, like he is good energy.
1: Yeah. Very grounded.
2: Mm -hmm. And it would be in that church that he would eventually marry Tina. Oh, that's so sweet. All right. Let's hop to RISD, Rhode, Rhode Island School of Design. This place didn't have fraternities or sororities, which was really good. It did have some great parties, though. And one band that would play their parties had members of Frank Zappa's band who would go on to work with David Bowie and Lou Reed. Nice. He experimented with LSD, which expanded his mind and was a good thing for him at the time. He would do funny things with his roommate, like set their alarm for 5 a.m., take acid, go back to sleep, and then wake up and go to their classes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I, how do you go to sleep after taking drugs? Like, well, because it doesn't kick in,
2: right? I guess that's true. You like, take the acid. You have to
1: get it in, in time.
2: You probably sleep for three or four hours, then you wake up, and then, I guess, You're yeah. You're riding high. He said it didn't improve his artwork, but it made him more mindful to the beauty of his surroundings and the people in his life. We're going to take a quick pause in our show to tell you about usual wines. Usual wines are wines for the modern drinker aka me and maybe you too each bottle is 6.3 ounces which is a heavy pour or about a glass and a half of wine so no more pouring wine down the sink when you don't want to finish the bottle you know what else i've done don't tell anyone i've poured wine from my glass back into the bottle when i couldn't finish it but not anymore because of the single serve format and bottle design usual is always fresh no more flat bubbly or stale rosé usual has a red blend a rosé and a sparkling white wine called Brut. The wines are low carb and have zero grams of sugar. My favorite was the white which was surprising because I'm usually a red drinker. I could taste the elderflower and it really smelled lovely like bergamot. It's refreshing and not too sweet, not too sour or too crisp and there's a really good balance. I was thinking maybe the lemon would make it too citrusy, but I think it really evens it out and actually gives it a really smooth taste. I would definitely order these again, and I hope you will too. Usual wines are made from world-class AVAs, American Multicultural Area in California, like Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara, and are made with minimal intervention, zero sugar, and zero additives. We have a special holiday product coming early November, usual reserve it's an ultra premium limited edition mount vider cabernet sauvignon introducing usual reserve this is our most special wine yet just in time for the holidays hailing from one of the most celebrated plots of land in all of napa this cabernet sauvignon is concentrated and rich with just enough grip gift it to someone special or keep it all for yourself the holidays as usual Go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES for $8 off your first order and try your first glass on us. That's www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MUSES, M-U-S-E-S, for $8 off your first order. Enjoy. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And I just feel like at that time, it was just probably different you're not like as paranoid right for sure you can just yeah I feel like people who haven't taken acid
1: also just think of it as like um this crazy drug where like you're just constantly hallucinating like the whole time yeah that's not necessarily the way it is so I get I get that
2: well, let me tell you about the first time Chris saw Martina, Tina Weymouth. Uh, let me hear it. He says, it was at the very beginning of the school year in September of 71. I was relaxing on the grass of the RISD beach. The RISD beach was a little grassy park. This was a place where the art students hung out between classes to chat, gossip, exchange ideas, or maybe just catch some Rays. Suddenly, as in a scene from a true a truffaut movie, I saw a girl pedaling down Benefit Street in our direction on an old yellow three speed bicycle. She wore a blue and white striped French sailor shirt and very short shorts. She was slender, fit, and her legs were fabulous. As she pedaled by, her blonde shag haircut taught her blonde shag haircut tossed in the breeze. She was watching the traffic, so she didn't look in our direction. But I could see her face was slightly freckled and extremely pretty. Her eyes were set wide apart and seemed to reflect a keen intelligence. She was smiling to herself about something. That's such a beautiful description. Yeah. He looked at his friend and said, wow, did you see her? And he's like, yeah, that's my friend Martina. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. So they had a life drawing class together. And at the end of the class, Chris introduced himself. Tina had transferred from Barnard college in New York at the recommendation of her art history professor. She had a boyfriend and Chris had a girlfriend, but they became friends. And as you saw from that little video that I sent you, Chris had said she had a boyfriend, but I was patient. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> sat around, smoked camels, and I guess they were so engaged in their conversation that after one night of talking, Chris's girlfriend said to Chris <laughs> of Tina, I'll bet she's not even a real blonde. Oh, come on. <laughs> Come on. She could feel that something was probably happening, you know, like that girlfriend instinct. For sure. A lot of really amazing people came out of that school. I don't know if you've ever heard of Steven Sprouse. He intended to major in fashion design, but he was asked to go to New York and leave school. He eventually became a protege of Andy Warhol and had a muse called Debbie Harry. Amazing. (laughs) He dressed her in his unique and edgy, glamorous style, and, you know, he, he ended up doing all right. Yeah. One night, uh, Chris was still with his girlfriend, Andy, but things were really starting to wind down between them. He got up the courage to knock on Tina's door. They both had puppies at the time, so he made up the excuse that he needed dog food. Mm -hmm. Then he confessed, I didn't really come here for dog food. I came here tonight because I want to sleep with you. Tina looked at him, smiled with her big blue eyes and said, Chris, I like you too, but you know, I already have a boyfriend whom I love very much. I couldn't do that. To which he replied, well, I'm a very patient guy. If for any reason that doesn't work out, I'll be waiting. Tina smiled and said, we'll see. Smiled again and closed the door.
1: They'd have plenty of time together. Don't worry.
2: Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Painting was going fine for Chris. And during the summers, he'd continue to work at Welding Company and play his drums in his parents' basement. He still dreamed of being a musician. His parents always encouraged his love of music. He loved all styles of music, but felt most passionate about rock and roll, rhythm, and blues. Because Nixon abolished the draft in 1973, Chris didn't have to go to Vietnam. Hmm. Like, can you imagine if he did? I can't. Uh, The year before that, in 1972, Chris joined a band, and he just kept improving. His skills just kept improving. He moved out of residence into the Pine Street loft and paid rent and to pay rent and his for his herb, he got a job at a restaurant. He learned how to move fast, not bump into cooks, how to crack a dozen eggs with one hand, and then he worked there until he graduated. Cool. Yeah. So, I love this next story. It kind of shows how much of a decent young man Chris was. And it really sparked the beginning of Chris and Tina's romance. Mm. All right. I'm just going to flip to it. Okay. So this is when the two of them really started to get together. It was a chilly Friday night. He says, I was walking down benefit street, smoking an unfiltered camel cigarette when I heard the desperate sobbing of a crying young girl coming from the bushes in front of the colonial apartments where a lot of RISD kids lived. He found that it was Tina. Mm -hmm. So Tina, I'll actually, I'll just let him say it. (laughs) I asked if she would like to go to my place and she nodded. Yes. Still sobbing. Tina was strong but petite and the combination of brandy and cold medicine and an empty stomach had completely overpowered her. Breaking up with her boyfriend, even though it was her idea, had caused her great sadness. She was grieving. I picked her up and carried her down the street to my building up four flights of stairs and into my apartment. I laid her up on my bed and propped her head up with two pillows and covered her with a warm blanket. I put a bucket on the floor beside her just in case. She was already asleep and de- and breathing deeply. Keeping my clothes on, I lay down on the other side of the bed and closed my eyes. In the morning, I made us breakfast. Using the skills I learned at David's Potbelly, I made an omelette filled with peaches and cream cheese. Tina loved that. I turned on my little black and white portable TV and tuned into Soul Train. This featured artist that morning was Al Green with the live band singing Love and Happiness. Mm -hmm. So the two of them just loved this. And from this time on... He and Tina would become closer, spend a lot more time together, make this a little tradition, you know, watching this together and having breakfast in the morning. And they had been good friends for a year and were falling in love. Oh, I love it. Now, the reason why I love that story so much is because Chris was obviously falling for her already and she was in a vulnerable position Mm -hmm. and he took care of her like, a good person should exactly yeah like that's how you do that yeah for sure and i just you got to celebrate good guys you know oh absolutely absolutely during risd's spring dance chris's band played and this really sparked something in him because of course playing live for a live audience would do this to you Mm -hmm. chris really wanted tina to join his band This took some time. He knew she had a great sense of rhythm because he danced with her, but she said she didn't want to join because um, she didn't want her art to suffer, and she knew uh, what the really sexist music industry was like. Unless you're the lead singer, there's not a lot of women playing music, I guess, at the time. Mm -hmm. So for now, it was a no, but she said she'd be supportive of him. Interesting. Interesting. Chris's friend asked him to play some music, help him create music for a student film he was working on. Tina had a little carriage house, and so they all decided to meet there. Mark arrived with his friend, David Byrne, who would be playing guitar. Ah. That's how they met. Yes. He thinks that Mark got what he wanted from the first take. When they finished, David kind of shifty-eyed, told Chris that he could play other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) he barely recognized david because the last time he had seen him was in his freshman year and at the time david had a beard he had been cutting his own hair he wore secondhand clothes and hardly spoke to anyone
1: i can totally picture him being this like scruffy hippie looking dude
2: Mm -hmm. but now he had bleached blonde hair a five o'clock shadow and had transferred to another college i think he was also wearing like uh leather pants that he had sewn himself so chris says that he was very proto-punk so the thing is with david is that david had transferred to another school dropped out of that college tried to get readmitted into risd but they wouldn't readmit him but he was like fine with it because he said that he didn't believe in art school anyways and that it was a scam interesting okay chris's old roommate referred to dave to david as mad dave (laughs) so after that one day David dropped by Chris and Tina's art studio he wanted help with the song he said he had some lyrics but that's it they went I can't seem to face up to the facts I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax Love it. he had asked a Japanese girl to write him the bridge to emphasize the chaotic mind but it didn't work out Chris suggested that since Tina spoke French she could write the bridge she said that you know they should look to Alfred Hitchcock's character, Norman Bates, who took offense to women that he saw as being loose. And so the lyrics, known as the middle eight, were created by Tina. I can't believe this is the first song they wrote together. Uh, it is the first song that they wrote together. That is crazy. Hmm. So what Tina wrote has been described as very classical poetic French by several different contemporary French writers. Hmm. They said that nobody speaks or writes like this anymore. Yeah. The English translation to Tina's French is, what I did that night, what she said that night, realizing my hopes, I launched myself towards a glorious destiny. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Chris and Tina then added some English lyrics to the song. And this was their first songwriting experience together, as you said. So let's play Psycho Killer. recognize that face anywhere, wouldn't you? Oh god, yeah.
1: That's like such a good song. And that's the first song I always think of what like when you when people talk about bass lines and um she it's just so memorable and like it just sets you up. Like ah that song is the best. I love that song so much.
2: People asked her where she got the inspiration for that. And I guess if you watch the psycho the original psycho movie the shower scene Oh, interesting. Like the eh, eh, eh type of thing. I guess. I guess. So the next song that they wrote together was Warning Sign. It was built around a drum beat that Chris was playing in rehearsal, which he now realizes he owes the beat to Ringo Starr's Tomorrow Never Knows. Hmm. Chris wrote all the lyrics to that song in the style of The Velvet Underground. Nice. In 1974, they had enough cover songs and originals to play a show, so they called themselves The Artistics. (laughs) David was already displaying some odd and selfish behavior in those days. For example, in his senior year, there was a group show planned called Movies, Talent Show, Cocktail, TV, Live Bands, Guest Speakers. The band was to play, four artists had hung their shows, and everyone's work was displayed equally, including one of David's, because he was an invited guest as an artist to put some of his stuff up. Hmm. And this was for a RISD thing. It was a college show. However, the show was canceled due to the advertisement of free cocktails. So the band packed up, they left, and while they were doing that, David rehung the show so that all his artwork was in the front of the building. Wow. For people seeing it later, it looked like David's solo show. So David yeah. hadn't even been a student at the school for years. Wow. Chris says that at the, Chris says, This incident set an early precedent for David's seemingly continual need to aggrandize himself at the expense of his collaborators and if their contributions were not as important as his. Had I known about this at the time, I would have called him out on it, but I didn't. For some reason, nobody told me. Years later, he treated the rest of us in Talking Heads with similar disrespect and continues to do so. I have to wonder how his new collaborators will feel. Tina has said that he seems incapable of returning friendship. We learned this from experience. Wow, that's really interesting.
0: Very uh
1: a single-minded artist, which right. is it is like how do you collaborate with people like that? It's just you you can't, really.
2: It's uh it seems like if anybody could do it, they were the people to do it. They really always put talking heads first, like ahead of I think their own personal interests. Mm. And luckily they were so successful with their other endeavors too. They never seemed to be like too burned by anything that David did. No pun intended. Oh, God. (laughs) In their final year of school, Chris got his own place so he could be alone with Tina. One day, she asked him to cut her hair into a blunt, straight cut. And as he was doing this, he said, you know, Tina, I feel like we could be married. And to that, she replied one word. Yes. Oh, so cute. They worked really well together in the studio. They were both preparing series of paintings. And while they did this, they listened to a lot of the Brown University FM station. They discovered a lot of new new music and they both loved reggae. They also liked bands like Kraftwerk, a band that they heard on a jukebox one night. Hmm. They had great taste in music and you could really see how they brought this into both of their, you know, amazing bands. For sure. David and Chris were playing more shows together, and while some people were uncomfortable with David's stage presence, the way that he lost himself in the music, Chris thought that this was a good thing. After graduation, Tina and Chris decided to move to New York. He had saved some money by painting a mural that summer in Pittsburgh, and off they went. Amazing. Mm hmm. Dreaming of a place where his band could play, something important to their band, like finding a place that was important to their band, like the Cavern Club had been to the Beatles. One day, Chris walked into CBGB. Now, do I say CBGB or CBGBs? CBGBs. Okay. Even though the sign says CBGB, right?
1: Uh, I, I mean, both work.
2: I always say CBGBs. Okay. CBGB. So you had recently put out a poll on Instagram. Yeah. What do people where where do they I guess see themselves or feel themselves more Max's Kansas City or CBGBs? Yeah. And what one? I think CBGB I th- by a lot. I think so. What about you? How do you feel between those two venues? I picked Max's solely
1: because I that is a place that people sat at tables and you could like talk to people so if I went back in time I'd like to like go table to table and talk to all the people there but like for for watching shows I would definitely pick CPGBs.
2: Cool. I love how you participate in your own polls. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I'll, I'll make them and I'm, and I'm like, I don't know who to pick. <laughs> we get lots of messages too, being like, this is too hard. I don't know. I know. I'm like, believe me, I know. I'm sitting here struggling too. And I'm like, too bad. You have to choose. Yeah. So when he did stop into CBGBs, it was dead. It was like the middle of the day, I guess, and it was just dead. But he heard that a band called the Ramones would be be playing later that weekend. He thought, okay, cool, a Mexican band. And he'd come back to see them. (laughs) The Ramones. (laughs) (laughs) To him, when he did see the Ramones, realized, okay, they seemed like a non-conceptual art piece. And soon we'll be getting into how Talking Heads came to open for the Ramones in Europe. Nice. David was also in New York at this time And Chris asked him to be a part of his new band Without looking him in the eye David replied, I guess so <laughs> Tina, and- <laughs> I love him, I do, Like I love him I, I still love David Byrne <laughs> Tina and David agreed to be his roommates And they all moved into an old loft together On Christie Street Which is, I guess, the Lower East Side <laughs> I'm
1: not sure about that street
2: he said it was a nightmare of a neighborhood but the upside of the bowery was that he could walk down the street and bump into debbie harry chris said debbie and tina were like roses in a rattlesnake nest nice Steven's spouse, who I mentioned earlier, he lived just a block away in the same building as Debbie and her boyfriend, Chris Stein. He would also cross paths with Johnny Thunders and his girlfriends of the moment, who Chris had always looked so fine compared to Johnny's looking like a mess. Oh, I bet. So he probably ran into Sable at one point. Sable star. Exactly. He doesn't mention, but I definitely bet that they did. Uh, people that he does mention around there at that time were Willem Dafoe, Robert Mapplethorpe, and feminist writer Kate Millett. Nice. One time he walked into the Tin Palace and saw Mick Jagger sitting alone wearing a huge newsboy cap, high as a kite, singing, killing me softly. <laughs> but instead of singing the words, he was singing at the top of his lungs, blowing me softly with his lips. So Chris decided not to introduce himself that day. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. You can just picture it, can't you? Oh, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. (laughs) So Chris, Tina, and David all had jobs to support themselves. Tina was a sales girl at a chic ladies' store. David was a photostat man in an uptown ad agency, and Chris was a stock boy at a design research at, sorry, it's called design research, which sold European furniture. He there ran into celebrities like Jackie O, Paul Newman, Diana Ross.
1: Nice. Wow. Cool.
2: Many people didn't understand why Chris was forming a band with David. He says he was awkward and with what we now know on the high-functioning end of the spectrum. Chris's father called David a very thin reed to lean on. He could be painfully gauche, like when he was at Tina's parents' for dinners. One time he lined up all of his peas on a knife and let them roll into his mouth and then lined them all up and did it again. (laughs) You know, the eye contact thing was difficult. He would often... Leave places without saying goodbye. Hmm. But we know he's a genius, right? He's an absolute like musical genius, and if if he hadn't been on this like high functioning end of the autism spectrum, he wouldn't be him, and that's a very special thing. This is not a this is not a negative, for sure. I think it's just better understood now. Exactly. Right, and maybe had they known this at the time that. They would have cut him a little bit more slack. I don't know. Mm -hmm. One Friday night, actually, I want to just say this, what he says about David. This is a quote. He was a superb rhythm guitarist. He was also very willing to make an unexpected move, both musically and physically, he got into music to get out of himself. When you played with music with David, you came to realize that his eccentricities were not an act. There was something deeply moving about his determination and heartfelt efforts to perform a song, even in the early days. In spite of his shyness, he craved being the center of attention. He was always doing some weird thing, like not joining in on a conversation, but then quoting that conversation in one of his song lyrics. At a party, he would sometimes stand alone and not speak to anyone while looking very uncomfortable. People would watch him like they might watch train wreck. People, some people felt very uncomfortable being near David, others were strangely attracted to him. I knew he wanted to be a star, but we still had no idea who would be the front person in our band. David was a very unlikely front person, so everything was up in the air. That's, that's a good description. Yeah. One Friday night in 1974, Chris and David saw Angel and the Snake at CBGB's. The singer was heartbreakingly beautiful, as Chris describes her, and her voice was clear, sweet, and unaffected. At the end of the show, Chris offered to buy her a drink, introduced himself and David, and asked her if she'd join their band. She looked <laughs> at them smiling and said, my name is Debbie Harry. I already have a band, but you can buy me a drink. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Chris saw many other influential artists there, like Patti Smith. He saw her for the first time. By mid-November of 74, they were all getting into the swing of things in New York. Apparently, you could have a lot of fun with no money. Yep. A momentous day for Chris came when Tina walked into their loft carrying a 1963 Fender Precision bass guitar. Yeah. She had been saving money with her work, and her parents had given her a $100 check for her 24th birthday. Cool. So she was able to buy it. It was a Uh. big bass, almost as big as her, and she had done her research. It was a good bass. I'm excited for her. Mm -hmm. So previously, Tina had played, she had gotten an acoustic guitar at the age of 14 and loved to play. And she also played the flute, but she really made this leap with the bass. And we all know how well that turned out. Yeah. Iconic. Their songs grew out of extended improvisations. They were influenced by artists that had come before them, but their time at RISD taught them to add something that was unique onto themselves. A friend named Michael Wayne Zeeve suggested their name. Hmm. That when they were coming to, you know, what are we, what are we going to call ourselves? Uh, He was the one that helped them. Cool. So do you know what Talking Heads is? No, tell me. Um, Okay, let me just find it. Okay, he says, I was reading TV Guide and they had a glossary of television cameraman terms. When you have a shot of just the announcer's head and the shoulders, it's called a Talking Head. It's the most boring, but also the most informative format in TV. I think you should call your band Talking Heads. That's such a cool uh, reason, and
1: it makes perfect sense. Yeah, a Mm -hmm. Talking Head.
2: Yeah. Their first show was in May 1975 at CBGB's. They opened for the Ramones, who said, during their little, I guess, audition, Mm -hmm. the Ramones said, yeah, they suck, so they can open for us. They'll make (laughs) Yeah, you gotta start somewhere. (laughs) As we know, Talking Heads did not suck and they got a great reception from the crowd. Yeah. Chris said, people were intrigued by our quirky little band. Guys were entranced by Tina. Such a pretty thing with so much power. This didn't bother me a bit. I was confident that Tina and I already had a very strong bond. David made a big impression too. Even in these earliest shows, he delivered the songs in a little high-pitched voice and an uneasy earnestness that was very uncommon in rock and roll. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that confidence that Chris has in their relationship would really come in handy when they would be touring and things like that. And I think that if Chris would have been an insecure man, then their relationship probably wouldn't have lasted. But he was secure in themselves. He trusted Tina, and it was the other way around. And that's probably why they have been able to stay together for so long. Yep. For sure. Like, he is... Whatever the opposite of toxic masculinity is, Chris seems to be that. Uh, I need to meet more men like that. (laughs) Uh, We all do. Shortly after, they were taken to Columbia Studios to record a live demo demo. Seymour Stone of Sire Records saw them play one night and was mesmerized by the song Love, Building on Fire. He was drawn to... The stage by some mysterious force. He said, like a snake charmer, he wanted them to to make a record for Sire. Mm. So I think this is probably a good time to play that song, "Love Building on Fire." Let's do it. It's love, love.
1: which is my face, which is a building.
2: The trio decided that they needed a fourth member, ideally someone who could play keyboard. So the search began. We'll put a little pin in that. In the summer of 75, the band was introduced to Patti Smith. And look, she said to them what everybody is thinking. She looks them over while snapping her chewing gum and said, oh, yeah, you're the art school band. I wish my parents were rich enough to send me to art school. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, harsh, but I mean, like, true. you know, they are who they are because they went to that school. They all like, you know, they, they all worked jobs. They did. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. One thing that I learned in this book, something that I'd always wondered was the band, like how the band, uh, the Heartbreakers came to be.
1: Mm. So
2: Chris knew Richard Hell, who played bass for television. He quit the band and formed the Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders. Yep. In 1976, Johnny was in Florida on the ill fated final tour of the New York Dolls when he saw posters from a band from Gainesville, Florida called Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He liked the name The Heartbreakers and thought that these boys wouldn't go anywhere. So he mm-hmm. did use their name. That's what Chris heard, anyways. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I always wondered uh, if they knew of each other or, or like how they both came to be the Heartbreakers. That's interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, it seems so. Yep. <laughs> so like I was saying how you know Chris and Tina seemed to have a really healthy relationship as they were playing shows together uh, you know people you couldn't help but love Tina people were mesmerized by her both on and off stage Richard Hell, Dee Ramon and I'm sure many others had crushes on Tina and this never bothered Chris he said that he wasn't surprised or jealous he said it merely showed that they had good style and taste in women as well as music Ah, uh, I love him. Yeah. Once Johnny Thunders asked Chris if Talking Heads was a feminist band because a third of the band was female and they also had a song called Girls Want to Be with the Girls. And I think this also shows Chris's character even back in the 70s when he said, yeah, we are. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I had messaged you during this episode and I was like, have you ever heard about Jane County? Yeah. So this is a trans artist who had been in the underground scene for years. Mm-hmm. And she seems like she deserves um, an upcoming episode Oh, Jane is amazing I love I love Jane so much So we'll leave that there for now Cool The band was starting to get really good press They were featured in The Village Voice Danny Field, you know, the guy who knew anybody who knew anybody yep. <laughs> Wrote about them in his talent spotting column in the Soho News Cool They met and spent time with Lou Reed Uh, This was the only person Chris had ever asked an autograph for. Mm -hmm. This wasn't the only cool and famous person they started rubbing elbows with. They were also invited to the factory. They all called in sick for their day jobs. (laughs) Once at the factory, Christopher Mackis, did I say that right? Yeah. Joined them and took some amazing photos. Andy Warhol even did a radio commercial for them saying, buy the new Talking Heads record and tell them Warhol sent you. Nice. He continued to be a fan of the band when to their shows, although he sometimes referred to them as the talking horses. <laughs> whether <laughs> on purpose or by accident, who's to say. <laughs> so talking heads were really just wearing street clothes. They weren't trying to be anyone else. I think that they said all they needed to do with their sound. They tried to look nice. And of course, if anybody in the band was the fashionable one, it was Tina. Mm-hmm. Actually when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they performed at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002, Tina wore her leather pants from 1969. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Tina. Yeah. For many years, David and Chris just wore polos that had been bought for Chris by his mother. <laughs> so, you know how I mentioned they were looking for a fourth member? Well, that's where Jerry Harrison – the former keyboard player for Modern Lovers, comes in. Cool. He was also a good guitarist. Talking Heads played 65 gigs in 1976, mostly at CBGBs. Among them was a live album. They played a bill that year with Patti Smith Group, Television, and the Ramones. Uh, I just want to go back. They're so bad. Yes. Imagine those being
1: like the regular bands that you see like weekly.
2: Exactly. So the band was doing great. They had a great work ethic. Weird things would happen sometimes, like Chris would hear from their sound man that David mentioned to him. Like, I'm thinking of kicking Tina out of the band. But then, like, nothing would happen. Weird. If they weren't playing live, they were working on new songs. At this point, they had a lawyer. They learned about music publishing and songwriting. And... Around this time, David said, I can't sing songs with, with conviction unless I write the words. I want to be the only one who writes the words. So what does that mean to you? That's interesting. I don't know. I, I get that
1: in a way, like wanting that connection to what you're putting out there. But, but
2: also, who, who gets be- the money? Like what, what really That's pays? so true.
1: Yeah. It's
2: songwriting. That is is publishing, right? Oh, that's kind of shady. In the fall of 1976, it was time to make a record, and they didn't rush it, right? Like, they made sure that they were performing and that the world didn't get a record when they weren't ready for it. Mm. So they ended up getting a recording contract, and shortly after that, Tina and Chris decided to become engaged. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I like what Chris says about David, something he noticed when recording this album. David was not anybody's idea of a good singer, but he was our idea idea of a great vocalist. Hmm. They were a brand new thing, their style was personal, not riding on anyone else's coattails, and they were totally unique. They played gigs in Canada, they had a warm reception in Toronto, even before they started getting gigs in America. Cool. Talking Heads finished their first album in less than two weeks. Then they got a phone call that they invited to go on a European tour with the Ramones. So, like, everything is going perfectly, right? Yeah. So, I would highly recommend reading this book again because Chris has such a fantastic recollection of this tour and every detail about the European cities down to particulars, like, where they went and what they ate. Like, it really transports you. Cool. He talks about the Ramones' idiosyncrasies and Johnny's madness. Nice. Chris and Tina particularly loved Paris, and this would become a really special place for them in the future. The fact that they were walking the same streets as the beat poets, jazz cats, as and surrealists, they loved that. They knew that they were living a charmed life and expressed gratitude for being there in the name of art. Tina had spent time in France as a child, as her mother's family is from there, and she spoke excellent French. So cute boys, cute French boys at their gigs would surround Tina and ask her questions. David scowled and drank his beer while Johnny would (laughs) yell, speak English, if someone asked him something. (laughs) I can picture it so well. Tina did a lot of their interviews in France, and they loved the French hospitality, the good food and the flowers backstage. They were playing to sold-out shows. The band was in terrific form. There would be nights where both Tina and David would break strings on their guitars because they were going so hard. Cool. Chris celebrated his 26th birthday in 1977 when they were on tour in Holland. Nice. Now, can you
1: imagine that? I I was just thinking, like, 26, you're touring the world. At
2: it's the- per- It's perfect. Like you can still drink and not have the worst hangover in the world.
1: (laughs) Very true.
2: (laughs) You've had a little bit of life experience, all that stuff. So yeah, uh, on that set list, you know, among their songs were love, building on fire. "Uh Oh, love comes to town. Don't worry about the government. New feeling, cycle killer, take me to the river. So, we're going to play new feeling because I think, especially the beginning of the song, is really going to show off some of their musicianship at the time. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Mm-hmm. day on their day off they went to see the clash play and they hung backstage with the slits viv albertine was interested in tina and later viv asked tina to play bass on one of her albums cool i love it chris mentioned viv's great book and her writing skills joe strummer makes an appearance we did an episode on her anyone Mm -hmm. who's listening yeah Yeah. that's why i put that one in there for you Thank you. <laughs> Tina and Chris were two weeks away from being married. Their tour manager made sure to give them the honeymoon sweets wherever possible because they wanted to have they wanted them to have a little bit of special treatment. David would react in a jealous way if they showed affection in public, so they saved it for those moments when they were alone. Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm. Just, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. I can when- picture him too, like. Stop doing that, you know?
2: <laughs> or just scowling, you know, looking at yeah. the, the window in their tour band. <laughs> uh, one gig in Ireland, they played with the Ramones and the Boomtown Rats. Tina thought that they were much more civilized than the Ramones. They were charming and Bob Geldof would, of course, become super famous for Live Aid. Mm-hmm. Chris says, for some reason, we were not invited to play that gig. Oh, that's right. By 1984, David had decided that Talking Heads, one of the world's great touring bands, would stop performing live. So that was like probably the most bitter I heard Chris fight, <laughs> write about David in the book. Yeah.
1: Hmm.
2: So after that tour, Tina and Chris Chris left for Kentucky to be wed. Tina looked beautiful in her ivory silk gown. 37 years later, their son Egan would get married and his wife wore Tina's dress.
1: Aww.
2: Like we said, 42 years later, they're still going strong. Love it. Tina and Chris went directly to their honeymoon to their honeymoon after their wedding somewhere in the United States. Um, But they actually had to leave partway through the honeymoon to fly to New York to be the opening band for Roxy Music, Brian Ferry's solo show. This was the biggest venue in New York they had played so far. And some people even say that they outshone Brian that night. Amazing. They ran into Jerry Hall uh, backstage, who was, you know, Chris said, she's just perfect. She was gorgeous. And she kind of even said, like, uh," because Brian had made them wait outside in the heat and didn't let them backstage until they were, like, just due to go on with barely even a sound check. And so even Jerry had, like, said that he, in her, you know, southern drawl, like, that he was rude or something. And then not long after that, she started dating Mick Jagger. Ah, interesting. Okay, so time to make the album. They shared the studio with Aerosmith. Uh, They recorded during the day. Aerosmith recorded at night. And one day they went into the studio and the plate glass window had been covered with papers of hardcore porn by the guys in Aerosmith. So it was a bad vibe for Tina. So Chris took them all down and put them in a paper bag that Aerosmith could take somewhere else. (laughs) Good for Chris. Mm-hmm. For all of you true crime fans out there, uh, the summer this summer was the summer of Sam. The police called David Berkowitz on August 10th, and people started asking the band if Psycho Killer had been written about him. They said no, the song had been written ages ago, you know, when they were art students. Yeah. So once the album was completed, Talking Heads 77, it... Got really great reviews in in New York and in the UK. Um, They had beer with Lester Bangs one night. And Chris says, Lester was pontificating about the importance of remaining uncool in the face of coolness. He was referring to us, (laughs) ha. So if we didn't already think that Tina was amazing... Yeah. Well, here's another thing. At the end of every gig, she would settle up with the promoter. She had the best head for figures, was reliable and organized. She never got shortchanged, and she would count the money right in front of the promoter. Once she received an extra bill and returned it because the promoter had miscounted, so likely a first time that anybody ever did this, Yeah, they were, of course, <laughs> invited to return any time. Nice. So the band got to do things like go to California. Um, Tina was born in Coronado, California. David had visited San Francisco. Jerry had lived there when he was in The Modern Lovers, but this was Chris's first time. So, of course, you can imagine how special it is to go to L.A. for the first time, right, as a band especially. I certainly can. While in L.A., they met Rodney Bingenheimer, the true tastemaker. Mm-hmm. That night on the air, Rodney said that the – Talking Heads were great, and after that, they were added to the KROQ—I guess it's called K Rock—playlist cool. all the time. Yeah. Of course, they went to Tower Records. They didn't have any money to buy anything, but they did see their album on display with a poster advertising their three nights at the Whiskey A Go Go.
1: Ah, uh, that must have been cool to see.
2: Three sold-out shows at the Whiskey A Go Go.
1: Nice, nice mm-hmm. way to start.
2: Uh, mm-hmm. And playing in LA made Chris realize Really how different they were By hearing the other bands at the time
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. they really do stand out They are very unique
2: They continued to tour. Uh, Their shows in Europe were sold out. Boys were pushing to the front of the stage to be at Tina's feet. And Dire Straits were opening for them, so they were no longer an opening band. They had fans in Paris that were singing along to almost every song. They went back to England, and they, you know, Mick Ronson attended one of their shows. They played 15 shows in 17 days. They noticed at this point that the more successful Talking Heads was becoming, the more cold and irritable David was becoming.
1: Not surprised, especially with that touring schedule.
2: Yeah. In March of 78, the band recording more songs about buildings and food at Compass Point, which is in the Bahamas. They would go on to record Fear of Music, or no, not Fear of Music, but they would record, sorry, Remain in Light, Speaking in Tongues, and the first two Tom Tom Club records there. They would also produce Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers, as well as the fabulous Cadillacs there. So they spent a lot of time in that studio. Nice. May Pang makes an appearance because Ooh. she was working as a secretary um, around that time. So I just wanted to mention her and she just celebrated a birthday. So happy birthday, May Pang. We love you. We do. Brian Eno was working on this album. Tina was really secure in her bass playing and... You know, after all these tours, it was really exceeding anyone's expectations. Talking Heads had a first top 40 single with a song that they recorded called Take Me to the River, originally an Al Green Mm B-side. Other people like Brian Ferry and Levon Helm have recorded the song, but it was Talking Heads that made it a hit. Shall we listen to Take Me to the River? Let's do it up. Here it is. So how did the album come to be called More Songs About Buildings and Food? Tina asked, what should we call an album of songs about buildings and food? And Chris said, more songs about buildings and food. (laughs) Everyone thought it was a good idea. (laughs) I always wondered about that. Yeah. Chris and Tina purchased a barn-like house in Connecticut, just over an hour's drive from New York. The schools were good. little foreshadowing. And there were well-known musicians and writers who lived nearby. In 1979, they played on American Bandstand. That year, they also played Saturday Night Live. Bill Murray danced with Tina during the closing credits of the show. And after that year, Talking Heads really became a household name. Almost a mainstream band.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they were big.
2: Of course, Phil Spector makes an appearance because the band briefly considered having him produce their next album. Tina was always against it.
1: Long story short, he showed up to
2: their meeting super late. When he spoke, he whispered to the women he was with and the women replied for him. And when Tina said something, he said, great bass player, but you don't talk. Just keep quiet and keep playing bass. Wow. Wow. Obviously, he was not the (laughs) producer for them so during fear of music it was recorded in chris and tina's loft for the song life during wartime it became it began as a jam between chris and tina the vocal melody is tina's while david did come up with some amazing lyrics to that song david later credited himself as the sole writer of the song and this happened to them all the time uh, okay right so that album also has amazing songs like heaven air the song we played in the beginning mind yeah. and so on
1: Life During Wartime.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starts with Izimbra. Izimbra. Yeah. It's a good one. It's a like, good album. Yeah. I mean, that was really cool because the lyrics to that song are a sound poem by a data poet, Hugo Ball. It has Nigerian high-life influences, and Chris and Tina were really big fans of African music. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, tours went on. They would continue to meet bands like Rolling Stones on the Road. Um one night Chris ran into icky pop in Japan just at a quiet bar. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. So it was Tina and Chris who really were the ones that when it was time to go into the studio, they almost had to drag, they felt like drag David. Hmm. His attitude be- to- his attitude towards Chris and Tina began to grow more toxic. They felt like David was treating them as the side people in the band. And anyways, yeah, like, for example, when they released um, their next album, they all agreed that the writing credit would go in alphabetical order. All songs by David Byrne, Brian Eno, Chris France, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth. However, when they got their advanced copies of Remain in Light, they saw that David had changed it to all songs by David Byrne, Brian Eno, and Talking Heads. On the lyric sheet inside the album, Tina and Chris weren't even mentioned. What? So, like, things were really starting to get, like, ooh. Yeah. Uh. It was around this time that they added many more musicians to that live tour because it wouldn't be possible for only four members of the band to reproduce the Remain in Light album on stage so that's where that new lineup is formed and this is when I really started getting into the band when I was in high school because I started getting to the band once I saw Stop Making Sense yeah Mm. so this episode is getting really long but every band member is introduced their background what they contributed to the band so as always for more detail go and read the book yeah they started touring with these added musicians you know Chris says something that makes sense to me. He says, anxiety is the curse of the performing artist and boredom is the curse of the touring artist. So you're always feeling a little unsettled. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I think that they really reached a whole new level. As they were playing Take Me to the River, Chris felt the band was taken to a gospel place. He says, as I played this wonderful song and looked over at Tina with this new lineup, the band had taken a quantum leap. So, David started working on a solo project. And so, Chris and Tina was like, Well, if you're going to work on a solo project, we're <laughs> going to work on a solo project. And so, Tom Tom Club was formed. They had been listening to a lot of dance, early hip hop, and reggae music. They began working on songs and recording an album. And as we know, Tom Tom Club slaps. If everyone, if anyone ever doubted Tina and Chris's writing abilities or their contribution to the band, this proved how vital they were. And so, Tom yeah. Tom Club recorded the their first album in 1981. Cool. Yes, this album had such amazing songs like "Wordy Rapping Hood" and "Genius of Love." I think most people are familiar with "Genius of Love," so let's play "Wordy Rapping Hood." Cool. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace. Words to make the fighting cease, words to
0: tell you what to do, words are working hard for you. Eat your words, but don't go hungry. Words have always nearly hung me. Words of nuance, words of skill, and words of romance are a fill are stupid words are fun words can put you
2: on the run tina's sisters joined to do backup vocals in belgium the album went to the top of the charts i think they eventually went number one in 17 countries it was doing great in europe the record was a hit the album went gold hmm they were actually told about the album going gold when they were with David, who gave them no congratulations. To I was gonna heads. say how did how did <laughs> he take their success? Well, Talking Heads hadn't had a gold record yet.
1: Oh burn. Oh, oh nobody did.
2: It. <laughs> mm, got you. <laughs> so talking heads are gonna make a new album. Uh, they came back together. They they weren't split up. They just had both taking a break to do their own thing. And they came back together. Jerry yeah. was having some personal issues and drugs were becoming a problem. David's solution was to kick Jerry out of the band. Hmm. Chris sought advice from his father who rem- who recommended that he tell Jerry that Jerry would need to take a leave of absence and sort himself out, or he'd be kicked out of the band. Jerry didn't take a leave, but that heartfelt conversation was enough to get him to sort his life out. Oh, that's great. On Valentine's Day in 1982, Tina went off the pill and she soon became pregnant. The next time the band toured, Tom Tom Club opened for Talking Heads. Hmm. This would be Talking Heads' final tour of Europe. When they saw David Bowie at a show, he said, I can't wait to hear Tom Tom Club. And David looked rather sad. <laughs> <laughs> Tina was showing more and more, and she wore fitted clothes to her shows so that everyone could see that she was pregnant. Their first son, Robin, was born in 1982. Cool. So Tina and Chris didn't seem to have many problems in their relationship. And if they did, Chris left it out. The only thing that became a problem was Chris's partying. Now with a baby, Tina told him that he needed to be a responsible husband and father and get his act together. And he did. So what I mean by that is he did get into the habit of doing cocaine and staying out and doing, you know, parties. And she was like, okay, that's enough. And Mm. so that was enough. like it we're gonna fast forward of course we know that the fantastic stop making sense film was created and tina and chris went on to be record producers and as i said as chris was writing this book chris was writing her memoir still looking beautiful and how i adore her tina and chris had a second child with and with a nanny, they continued to tour with the babies. Of course, Speaking in Tongues was recorded, as was more Tom, Tom Club records. And you can see the music video for Burning Down the House, which got heavy rotation on MTV. So they just continued to be very busy to release things. I guess it, it seems like things were going at a fine pace because nobody really seemed to go off the deep end or anything. And they kept releasing really quality stuff for years. Yeah. Yep. David would continue to do hurtful things like tell the crew on mutual projects that Chris and Tina were divas and hard to work with. But Chris and Tina took the high road and they were just said they believed that that was projection. Hmm. Tina and Chris would spend quality time with their children and enjoyed traveling to Paris to see family and enjoy the romantic place together. They also liked to spend time on their boat to clear their heads and get away from everything. They went to Bruce Springsteen concerts and spent time with him and Patty Scialfa. They recorded a Tom Tom Club album with Lou Reed. Like, yeah. their rock and roll dreams were just coming true like crazy. Uh. So, Talking Heads had eight studio albums, Tom Tom Club you know, produced six albums while touring internationally. And in 1991, David kind of snuck out of the talking heads. He stopped taking their phone calls and all communication stopped. Tina and Chris built a great recording studio and started making and producing records. In 2001, they got a call that they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as it's actually the same time as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and so they began rehearsal. They rehearsed as a band, and... Chris says that it went well, despite David not talking to them for ages. Here's another kind of like interesting thing about David's personality. That night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, his wife couldn't find him. Hmm. And apparently he decided that night to tell her that he wanted a divorce.
1: Whoa. Mm.
2: Wow. Wow. Anyways, since everyone hadn't stopped performing, everyone was in really great shape at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? They yeah. weren't rusty. Yeah. they like, they'd still been doing it for years. They'd taken good care of themselves, it seemed. And you can, if you watch uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, their performance there, you can see the cuts to the crowd and you can see their, their two sons are there dancing.
0: Cool. I love Chris,
2: that. I love it too. Chris believes that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gave Talking Heads a happy ending. Of course, Talking Heads will never end. They will always continue to influence bands. Hopefully new people are discovering them still to this day. Yeah. You know, Tina had said in an interview really early on when one of their first performances that she wanted Talking Heads to make their mark on music history. And they did. They did. They certainly did. 2012, Tom Tom Club released Downtown Rockers like they just kept putting out quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. I'm going to read you one last thing just towards the end of the book, but what do you think we can expect from Tina's solo album? I mean, uh. a memoir, not album. <laughs> Her memoir, what would you kind of hope that we didn't mention here that you would get from that? That's interesting because I feel like you covered so much with this and
1: uh, I guess just more of her point of view, how she felt as a woman, like in this time, Uh, hopefully some more fun, like random stories, because those are always uh, interesting and uh, yeah, I Yeah, I guess probably about motherhood and things like that as well.
2: Yeah, that's definitely a good call. And you know, I wonder if Chris did gloss over some things with their relationships, like Tina told me to get my life together. Like, I like, you know, really almost downplaying any kind of like issues. I wonder if she would tap into that a little bit more and and...
1: probably I assume like they did have conversations where like, oh, well, that happened to me and it was deeply personal. So I'm going to write
2: like the full story on that type of thing. Maybe. Okay. So Chris says, Tina and I continue to have a wonderfully romantic life together. We've been married for 42 years. We treat each other with real love and we have many good friends who have shown us their love too. Both of our sons have made us proud and have become artists in their own right. Robin in music production and Egan as a painter and sculptor. Both of them are really good at what they do and have developed hard-earned followings of their own. Tina and I have taught them to be honest, loving, and kind. Tina told them the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Hmm. Interesting. Uh.
1: I was wondering if their kids were doing anything uh, in the arts that makes sense with mm-hmm. those parents.
2: Mm-hmm. This when, was so good. Yeah, and of course, you know, he finishes the book by saying that Tina and I remain in love.
1: <laughs> oh,
2: come on!
1: They're just like perfect. I loved this.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, it was it was a real joy to read. It was super fun typing it up, especially with some of the you know I had that Tom Tom Club and Talking Heads energy behind me, and it was like, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I hope you enjoyed the music that we added in, and, and that's we that.
1: should uh, watch American Utopia, the David Byrne. Uh, live show that uh, was just
2: put out by spike lee and cover that on the patreon oh that would be fantastic i would love that um i'm also re-watching stop making sense soon because we have it on dvd and we have a dvd player but we don't have the cord for it so we just ordered the cord and i get to watch all my Yay. dvds and my special features and like we have so many concert docs and yeah i just love hearing like directors speak over top of things like i know you're the same way so yeah
1: and especially now when we can't go to live concerts at least we have all these great concert ducks to keep us uh keep the
2: energy and the music alive totally well that wraps up another episode thank you so much for listening thank you and thank you shanti that was fantastic my pleasure and we'll see you next time Muses is produced by Chantal Lemieux and Lynx O'Leary and is part of the Pantheon family of podcasts. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at pantheonpodcasts.com All songs can be found wherever you get your music. Please download and purchase these great and important tracks. Come find us. At Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. Or see us at r r Archaeology on Instagram.
1: Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new. Or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Berndtwein is a horror fantasy medical mystery following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world in which viruses are gods and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are
2: best left unknown.